นโมตัสสะภะคะวะโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมตัสสะภะคะวะโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมตัสสะภะคะวะโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะพุทธังดัมมังสังขังนัมสังเราไม่ได้ต้องการที่จะเชื่อว่าคนจะเชื่อเราไม่ได้ต้องการที่จะเชื่อเราไม่ได้ต้องการที่จะเชื่อเราไม่ได้ต้องการที่จะเชื่อ
you know, I think actually life is full of mysteries and it's marvellous really to just not know about these things. The more I realise that I don't know, the happier I feel. It's, it's like there's an increased openness to the, the marvellous mystery of life. It's absolutely okay that I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. Yeah. But there is faith. There is faith. I do trust that there are true principles. There is a real reality behind the apparent, often chaos, of life. And if one can align oneself with those true principles, then I trust that things will be as good as they can be. So there was something useful that came out of that discussion. Another discussion that often takes place is, as I started off by saying, that for a lot of people... What, what, what is being sought for is peace of mind, is, is contentment. And there are many different ways of talking about spiritual life in general and, and Buddhist life, Buddhist meditation in particular. One way of talking about Buddhist meditation presents meditation teachings, meditation techniques as strategies that one has to set up do's and don'ts. There are these techniques which which one can learn, like focusing on the breath, or focusing on a candle flame, or holding attention on a particular theme of contemplation. And the intention behind this focusing the breath is to make the mind become a certain way, to make the mind peaceful. And then, in such a path of practice, it's often explained the different stages, the different points that you'll go through as the mind becomes more concentra- concentrated, and the insights that can arise in these level at these different levels of concentration. You can see this arise, you can see that fall away. This will happen, that will happen, and if this happens, you do that, and if that doesn't happen, well, then you should do this. And it's a very prescribed path of practice, and there are definite goals that one can see, uh, seek out or aim for and I, re- I tend to refer to this this way of presenting the teachings as goal oriented practice and for people who have a natural aptitude for goal oriented practice it's very important that they have a goal that they want to make their mind peaceful they know that peacefulness is the goal and will is very important exercising will to to really hold the attention firm on the meditation object, not to let the mind wander. And if the mind does wander, then bring it back, and keep bringing it back, and 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 notice what happens at at different levels of concentration, and and be really acutely aware of 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 the minute details of of the mind, and with walking meditation, with sitting meditation really slowing things down, being very acutely aware of every little minute activity of the body and mind. And one can get very, very refined in practicing this way. For people who have an aptitude for this sort of practice, if they don't have a teacher, if they don't have somebody to guide them, they can get very confused. For people who go in this direction, they need to be encouraged and have things pointed out to them and, and they, it's required and, and important that they, they become very certain of the techniques that they're using 
and to know the remedies of things that start to go wrong as they can feel they can if they're not getting the result they're looking for things can go wrong and as I was saying will is a very important uh, factor in developing a practice that's goal oriented however there is another way of practice that is quite different and I refer to it as source oriented practice and will is not the primary factor in source-oriented practice. Trust is. And the idea, the understanding is that instead of having to make our mind peaceful and get rid of the obstructions, rather we trust that there is at the source of our being an inherent experience of perfect adequacy which is, in and of itself, already still and calm and clear and bright. Now these are different ways of talking about practice and it's important that we engage our practice and make effort in practice in a direction, in a manner that really suits our character. Somebody who is naturally source-oriented in their way of approaching spiritual life um, has a an interest in the content of their minds they're not inclined to naturally dismiss things they're not interested so much in reaching a goal and making a willful effort to get rid of everything in their in their minds and and make their mind be a certain way but it's characterized more by an interest in what is this anyway what is this mind that can fantasize and imagine and create? What is the reality of it? It's interested in the reality. Yes, there is activity in the mind and that activity can be experienced as disturbance and disturbing, but rather than being motivated naturally, automatically motivated to get rid of it, there's an interest in the reality of it. And so with source-oriented practice, one can, one can include everything. There's nothing that's excluded from practice. There's absolutely nothing that shouldn't enter into your mind. And the way of dealing with the things that enter into our mind, if we're more source-oriented in our, the effort that we're making, is to be very careful that we're not taking a position for or against. Now, for somebody who's goal-oriented, somebody who's making their mind peaceful and using will to achieve the goal, so there are things that enter into the mind that shouldn't be there and you've got to make the effort to get rid of them. Now for somebody who's more naturally source-oriented, you know, we can look at what's arising in the mind, examine it, get to know it. Like desire. If you're trying to make your mind peaceful and you can, you can see that desire is an obstruction. Desire is, is disturbing my peacefulness and so you can try to get rid of desire. Mm. Well, it might work for a while, but for a lot of people, the more you try to get rid of desire, the more you actually build up a division within yourself. Mm. Or ill will. You can see ill will as 
as an obstruction to tranquility, but it's certainly not peaceful to have ill will in the heart. And we could just try and get rid of it, but we can also examine it, become interested in it. Well, what is ill will anyway? And my experience has been as if we, if we trust in, a, in the, the natural stillness and natural purity of our being, then we don't have to feel threatened by ill will. We can acknowledge this ill will is not peaceful, it's not agreeable, but we don't have to fight it, we don't have to try to get rid of it. If we are practicing such a way of trusting in the source of being, trusting that peacefulness already is there, the heart is already peaceful. We don't have to make our hearts peaceful. If we trust that the heart is already peaceful, then when something like ill will, which is a disturbance, or doubt, which is a disturbance, arises in the mind, we don't immediately judge them as being wrong. We can examine them. Experience of doubt. Feeling unsure. What should I do? Should I do goal-oriented practice or should I do source-oriented practice? Should I be willfully making my mind concentrate on the meditation object or should I just be relaxing and being with the way things are? Well, from the perspective of, of uh, trusting in the source of our being, we say, well, what's happening is doubt. Doubt is what's happening in the mind. There's doubt there, there's uncertainty. And so long as we don't really know doubt, doubt can just endlessly pester us. Mm-hmm. It can be endlessly driving us, propelling us into action. Whenever doubt arises, I've got to do something. That can be the feeling when, when uncertainty, fear of uncertainty arises, which is the, the nature of doubt. Doubt is the fear of uncertainty. And when it arises in the mind, you know, we can feel driven to doing something. Now if we inspect that feeling, yeah. I want to know, There's absolutely nothing wrong with wanting to know. There's absolutely nothing wrong with wanting to feel sure. If we can hold the feeling of I want to be sure in awareness as an experience and just know it, I want to be sure. We can see how the tendencies of mind I shouldn't be wanting. This, This is a disturbance. I should just get rid of it. We don't have to follow that. We can observe that. Feel it as it's arising feel it as a a movement in the mind, really get to know it, really examining it, until we're not afraid of it anymore. And doubt's not necessarily going to become pleasant, not being sure is not necessarily going to become pleasant, but we don't have to feel threatened by it anymore. And in fact, we might even arrive at the experience where, where something puts us into a perspective of doubt or position of doubt, we can even start to feel grateful because it tests us, it shows us where we're attached to having to feel sure. And if we can get such a relationship with doubt, if we can let ourselves doubt, if we can respect doubt, appreciate doubt, doubt can open us up. 
there are, you know, for people who are trying to make their mind peaceful, then doubt is generally seen as an obstruction and they'll do something to make themselves feel sure again and that might be what's needed. But for somebody who's more naturally uh, inclined to simply trust in what's already true, what I've been referring to as source-oriented practice, then doubt becomes very interesting. One of the things that one discovers about doubt is that doubt is really a symptom of faith. It's not the opposite of faith. Many people think that doubt is the opposite of faith. But if we're not judging doubt when it arises in the mind and saying it's wrong to feel doubt, to feel unsure, to not know, we're not judging it, we're not dismissing it, we're not trying to get rid of it, we just allow it to be there, what it is. It's like just letting doubt be doubt. The not fighting, the not resistance towards this experience opens the mind up, opens the heart up, and there's a larger expanded state of awareness in which doubt is just floating around. Doubt is moving around freely in awareness. And then we can see it, we can watch it, we can we can inquire it, we can ask questions of it. But we're not threatened by it. And as I was saying, one of the things we can discover is that that doubt really is an indicator of where there is a deeper faith. So a trusting heart is not doesn't have to be threatened by the distractions or the obstru- apparent obstructions that arise in the mind. We trust there is a real reality behind the apparent chaos. We trust there is a light behind the, the shadows that have been cast. And instead of dismissing something that appears to be obscuring the light, like doubt, we can examine it. If we didn't have faith, then we wouldn't even ask questions. One teacher once expressed this by saying, he asked the question, he asked, what is the heart of faith? What is the heart of faith? And then he answered the question himself by saying, the heart asked the question and the faith motivated the asking. Now if we really listen to that, that takes us to a place where we feel the activity of faith the preciousness of faith. And that's not something we're necessarily going to uh, appreciate if we automatically try to get rid of doubt. So there's much in practice, much that we come across in our experience of looking inwardly and our inner work that on the surface level can appear to be an obstruction. I often think about it as like compost. You know, there are a lot of really stinky things on the compost. Now there are some things that are bad for the compost. They'll destroy your compost heap. There are some things you really shouldn't put in your compost. Even the best composting system, you shouldn't put babies' nappies in. You know, they're really bad news to the compost. They just don't break down. Part of it breaks down, but the actual, whatever it is, fiberglass, whatever babies' nappies are made out of these days, doesn't break down. Or tea bags. Now the tea is all right. 
but the tea bag is really no good for the compost heap, and so we shouldn't put tea bags on the compost heap. But generally speaking, just because something is offensive and obnoxious and unpleasant to our senses doesn't mean to say that it's bad. There's a lot of very stinky stuff that makes very good compost. And so with this more organic approach to our meditation, we can, we can see that a lot of the difficulties that we might come across, a lot of the unpleasant things that we need to look at and pay attention within ourselves, if we have a trusting heart, if we have faith in a real reality, we don't have to automatically assume that it's bad. Just because it feels bad doesn't mean to say it is bad. Just because it feels good doesn't mean to say it is good. To me, the most obvious example, I often remind myself on this, is, is sleeping. You know, regularly it happens that I wake up in the morning and I just think, well, another hour would be very nice. And regularly, if I give myself even another half an hour, I wake up with a headache. And just because it feels good, I usually actually feel like I need more sleep than I do. I usually feel like I need to eat more than I do. Just because it feels good doesn't mean to say in reality it is good. Just because it feels bad doesn't mean to say it is bad. And so this is why the classical Buddhist teachings talk about the the five senses as being thieves. Now it's not a value judgment, it means we've got to you know, put ourselves into all sorts of austerities and, you know, give up enjoying sense objects. It's not that kind of understanding. But rather it's saying that if we don't understand the nature of the sense objects and the sense organs and the sensory impingement, if we don't understand this, then they actually deceive us. If something is unattractive, we automatically assume that it's, it's no good, that it's bad. So if trust is alive within us, if we really appreciate the functioning of trust and, and work to cultivate it, to see what happens when it's not there, to see how to, to bring it alive and see how to protect it within ourselves, to do whatever it takes to, to have a healthy functioning faculty of trust, then it means we have a, everything becomes practice. We don't have to live in a a rarefied special environment with, with every stage of practice explained to us. We don't have to have a teacher to always go back to and ask the teacher, what should I be doing now? As I said in the beginning, there are some people for whom that's suitable and it's important that they find such a place and such a teacher. But for people who that's not necessarily the case, they don't have to be in such places and everything is practice. Irritation, natural irritation when you're driving the car in the morning and somebody behaves badly in front of you, we can practice with irritation. Anxiety, you feel afraid in, in a situation. I know a few, a few weeks ago there was the, the uh, build-up towards the war in Iraq and a lot of people were very afraid and for some people, their choice of dealing with the anxiety and the fear was to find a fixed position. Is it right or is it wrong? And to find some confidence in feeling right or wrong. But there actually is another way of dealing with such a feeling of anxiety and fear to really 
become interested in it, no judgment. It's not wrong that I feel anxious. We don't have to say that we're failing because we feel anxious. There are causes for our feeling anxious. We may not know what they are. We might even decide to call them neurotic, but that doesn't get rid of them. Whatever the causes for our anxieties, if we include it and say, this is practice too. Anxiety is practice, fear is practice. I'm not wrong because I feel afraid. Just because I feel afraid doesn't mean something terrible is going to happen. It might mean that something terrible is going to happen, but it doesn't necessarily mean that something terrible is going to happen. There are other causes for our feeling afraid, irrational causes. And with desire, just because I want something, if I make the effort to get it, it doesn't mean to say that actually I'm going to feel good. So often I've been through this, you think, oh well, I've seen it this time, I really, I really got fooled, because I really thought that if I, if I got what I wanted, if I just got that little bit of information, or if I just solved that problem, that really would be it. And look at me, I've solved it, and here I am discontented again. I'm never going to get caught up in that one again. Well, I don't know about you, but I'm still here getting fooled by these desires. And what is it? Well, it's because, okay, I might have gotten to understand the nature of desire on some level. I might let myself want things freely, openly, as a whole body mind on some level and know it and be familiar and not be fooled with it on that level. But on another level, on deeper levels, there are still places where I'm still being fooled by desire. I don't see it happen. I don't see it arise. It can be, there can be obvious and coarse desires. Uh, there can also be very subtle desires, like wanting to, wanting to know the right thing to do in a particular situation. And if you, for instance, you want to help somebody, that's natural enough, wholesome enough, healthy enough. Somebody's having a bad time, and you really want to help them. But if we don't see, if we don't see how we're wanting to help them, if we don't see how we're wanting to help them, then we can actually be identified with that. We can be caught up in that. We can be, it's I wanting to help this person who's suffering. Yes, they might be having a really bad time. And yes, it would be marvelous if we could help them. And yes, I do want to help them. But maybe it's I want to help them. It's not just the selfless, altruistic motivation to help somebody, but there can be, through not knowing, through unawareness, a clinging to wanting at a subtle level. It feels so right, feels so appropriate, that I feel completely natural being identified as it. But the result, if I'm identified as wanting to help somebody, and they don't want my help, or whatever I do, my gesture to help them goes wrong, and they get upset or whatever, then I am very disappointed. Now what's the problem? It's not that I didn't want to help, but it's the problem is that I didn't really know wanting. So one of the reasons why we don't know desire, we don't know the subtleties, we don't know the dynamics, we don't know the actuality of desire, is because we feel threatened by it. And when automatically, uh, for a lot of us, uh, 
you know, we, a desire arises, we just have an automatic response. It's right or wrong. But sometimes we were conditioned into taking a position for or against desire at a, at a time when we weren't very well informed about the reality of life. We weren't very well educated spiritually. We weren't, ver- we weren't very able as individuals. And, and yet sometimes we can go through life just applying the same formula to our desires, right or wrong. If it's right, we grasp it. If it's wrong, we deny it. But that doesn't really that doesn't really put us in a responsible relationship with the desire. That doesn't give us a feeling of confidence with our own hearts. We can still end up feeling like we're always fighting life. You know, fighting to get what we want, believing that what we want is wholesome and right, and fighting to get rid of all the unwholesome wants that we entertain or or know uh, they are lurking within us. If our path of practice is, is established primarily in trusting in inherent purity, inherent stillness, goodness, clarity, then when desire arises, and it really doesn't matter what the object of our desire is, that's totally secondary desire arises we're interested in it what's the reality of wanting and how do I how do I meet this want do I automatically judge it right or wrong or do I examine it and and from this perspective wanting becomes our teacher we don't have to have some authority telling us what to do what's right or wrong good or bad what's the next step we can examine wanting itself. I want to know the next step in practice. I want to know what I should be doing in practice. Fine. We can just want to know. We can sit there, feel what it feels like in the body to want to know what the next thing to do is. And if our mindfulness is properly prepared in the body, in the heart, in the mind, then that wanting isn't a problem. Wanting is only a problem when we're partly fighting it. Sometimes we sort of know what we want, but for various reasons, whether it's because of our own laziness and and willingness to examine it, or whether it's because of some very strong pattern of conditioning, like sometimes you were taught that you're not allowed to have desires. You're not supposed to want anything, basically. You're supposed to just fit in. Just don't be a nuisance. Just fit in and be a good girl or a good boy or whatever made to feel guilty for wanting things, wanting in general, or you know, speci- certain specific wants, and so we never deal with. But wanting is energy. Wanting is energy. Passion is energy. And in our mindfulness practice, if it's established in a, a trusting relationship with reality, with the order that lies behind the apparent chaos of, and confusion of life, if that's what our our practice is based on, then we can let ourselves want anything without being afraid. Our behavior of body and speech is determined by our commitment to moral precepts and so our appreciation of what it means to have a sense of self-respect and dignity and also just knowing what's appropriate in some situation protects us from from doing and saying things that are inappropriate. And with that confidence, well, we can let our mind want anything. 
And instead of some of these unpleasant desires, like wanting to hurt somebody, maybe, you know, it can be very painful. Somebody hurts you and you can want to hurt them back. It can be a very painful desire. And we may not want to own up to it. We may not actually want to own up that we're angry and we really want to hurt somebody, we want to make somebody suffer. But if we don't own up to it, that energy, energy is dynamic, that energy will go toxic on us. It'll ruin our compost heap. Instead of enriching our compost heap, that anger could be enriching our compost heap, could be teaching us something. But instead of doing that, if we deny it, actually it'll go toxic on us. Turn into poison. So the way in which we think about practice, the way in which we think about what it is we're looking for in practice is very important. If it's the case that we want, we're looking for peacefulness, and then it's, it's, it's suitable to look at the way we approach our path of practice of making the mind peaceful. Yes, it's true for some people that um, making determined, focused, willful effort and having clear strategies is the appropriate path. And, and if such people have questions, it's good to find somebody who can answer your questions and feel confident. And when you feel confident, you'll have energy and you'll progress in the path. For others, and I count myself as one of these, we've overused will. I refer to such, pe- refer to such people as will junkies. We've abused will, like some people abuse alcohol. Once you've abused alcohol for a certain period of time, you can never use it. Well, so it is for us will junkies who abused will, kind of control freaks, mm-hmm. strategize our life very early on in life, the way we make ourselves feel safe. But then by the late 20s, early 30s, mid-30s, definitely by 40, we've worn it out, we've worn it down, we've overused it, and we're forced to find another way of relating to life. Well, for such people, or anybody who has a natural interest in the content of their, li- of their minds and, 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 and a trust in the inherent goodness of life, then, then I recommend actually not turning away from these apparent obstructions like doubt, like fear, like greed. Not assuming the validity of the way these things appear. Just because it feels good doesn't mean to say it is good. Just because it feels bad, just because it feels painful, just because it feels disappointing and frustrating doesn't mean to say that it's bad. Hold it free from judgment, become interested in it and look deeper and see what it can teach us. Thank you very much for your attention.